Recent advances in technology are likely to make artificial intelligence the biggest labor market disruptor of the 21st century. The capacity of AI to produce language, shape and monitor behavior, and increase the efficiency of routine tasks creates multiple dilemmas for the future of human work. Jobs and the skills required to do them will change in significant ways. Evan Selinger, a professor of philosophy at the Rochester Institute of Technology, is well positioned to ask and seek answers to the moral, ethical, and practical questions AI poses to modern society. We'll discuss the relevance of social obscurity and transparency, data privacy, and the regulation of new technology. Evan Selinger, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me, Brent. Uh, thrilled to be here. Well, it's really great. This is our second chance to get together and talk, but the first time we've actually recorded uh, our conversation. So um, uh, I, I really want to get started where we normally do, which is around this question of vocation. Um, and I know that you thought, uh, you think a lot about vocation as I keep, I keep imagining you at the Rochester Institute of Technology in the philosophy department. I think that must be a very hearty band of of people at RIT who are who are in philosophy among all of the technologists so um but but tell me what's uh what, how, how did Evan Selinger happen uh, how did you get to where you are today oh my god it was the best of times Brent it was the worst <laughs> of times <laughs> I would say the the cliff note version is this listen I I was probably a very um precarious, but also probably very twee and obnoxious undergrad. I, I was that kid who came to college, automatically had as a kind of, you know, gen ed requirement, a philosophy class and the light switch went off. I thought, wow, okay, here is a language. Here is a process for understanding things that I've been thinking about, but I didn't have the vocabulary for, much less a real appreciation that people made a living doing this thing. So that got the adrenaline pumping, that that got the neurons firing, and I was off at the races. But it really probably wasn't till um, till grad school that I ended up doing anything remotely like what I'm doing today. As it turns out, when I was doing my PhD, I went thinking I was going to do this, that, or the other thing. But again, as luck would have it, I ended up taking a class my very first semester with a guy named Don Eide. And when I was looking at the faculty that I wanted to work with, when I picked that program, he wasn't on my radar, not for any reason other than the guy worked on technology. And I didn't think I had any interest in that. But he made the information come alive. And he was interdisciplinary. And he was exciting. And he would tell tales of going all over the world and talking with people, not just in philosophy, but outside. And it felt like this guy wasn't just repeating insights of the past and just working within text. He wanted to make these ideas have, have, have relevance. And that that was a new way of, of thinking for me. And one other person I'll just mention, and this is somebody who maybe after this podcast, I'm going to send him another note of appreciation. When I was a grad student at that program, there was a guy by the name of Patrick Grimm. And Patrick was an outlier compared to most of the other departments. The things that he worked on weren't um, in the spirit of what the majority of people focused on. And I thought this guy is super smart. And I'm like, I need to learn from him. 
And he was on my dissertation committee and I did some classes with him, but the guy was beating to his own drum and was not looking for accolades. He was not looking to build up uh, a school of thought around him. He was about the ideas. And I just didn't fully, fully appreciate at the time his commitment to the intrinsic value and how that would sustain him over time as sort of, you know, intellectual fashions would sort of come and go. Um, it's sort of like realizing that your parents or, I don't know, some other elder that when you were a kid, you're like, I knew they were kind of on the right track, but you didn't fully appreciate till you got older. That That is definitely my view of Patrick Lynn, one of the best. So uh, I want to go back just a little bit further. I was uh, last weekend, I, I, I've been going through this process of archiving our family photos, kind of like not my, our immediate family, but my family of origin. And I was, I was looking at these photos and in this one photo, I'm sitting on a couch with my dad and brother and my grandfather actually. Uh, and um, I looked out at the, the coffee table that was in front of us and there were just like stacks of magazines and every kind of magazine that you could imagine. I mean, it was scientific American and time magazine and newsweek and us news and sunset magazine. I mean, it was just like, uh, and I, and when I think about my own journey in life, that's the that's my origin story uh, sure. for how I got to where I am. What's the origin story for you? I mean, how did you wind up as this precocious, uh, obnoxious uh, <laughs> undergrad who was really interested in the world of ideas? I think it's probably the opposite of, of, of what you're suggesting. So, um, you know, sometimes we, we do the things we do uh, because we're encouraged to do them and there's a huge support network. Sometimes we do them oppositionally and defiantly. And I think I fell into to that category. Uh, I did not have the greatest life, home life growing up. Uh, I actually legally emancipated myself when I was 16 and felt that uh, the combination of the way that I was uh, being raised, there were a whole bunch of things that bothered me. And again, I felt like there was a disparity between how people were looking at things and how they really were. Mm. And I grew up on Long Island and, you know, a fairly affluent kind of suburban community. And so sort of, you know, being a bit on my own, uh, you know, ever since high school, and feeling like, okay, my peers around me, they've got it a little bit easier than, than, than I do. There are certain norms that kind of will make their, their futures easier. It gave me, a, a, you know, a slight feeling of alienation and outsider status. I mean, I don't want to overplay it, but within that local context. And so by the time I get to college and I'm thinking, okay, there's a number of pieces that are just not adding up in life. And these are things I think about, but I'm not entirely sure what to make of them or what to do about them. Like, is this just my own weird idiosyncratic experience or is this connecting to a larger human condition or other kinds of things? I think that's sort of what, what drove me. That's interesting. I mean, I think the answer to that question is probably both. It is idiosyncratic and it is connected to uh, the world of experience. I mean, that, that, uh, that's fascinating. That's one of the most interesting origin stories I've uh, encountered. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, you are a philosopher at a school that is dedicated to the advancement of technology, uh, and um, 
And they are so fortunate to have you as a voice who, uh, certainly not a Cassandra, uh, but a cautionary voice, I think, uh, in the world of technology. Let me ask, and I want to start with this question, which is every time we see a major development in technology, we hear uh, people ringing alarm bells. This is going to change us. It's going to change our lives, not necessarily for the better, very likely going to make a lot of things worse. And yet uh, progress continues. Uh, We're certainly in many ways, not in every way, but in many ways we're, we get, we are made better off by our technology and you take a pretty sort of, in my view, kind of an ambivalent stance uh, on the question of technology. Why is this time, particularly as it relates to artificial intelligence, why is this time different from your perspective? You know, I'll answer that directly, but I just want to set it up with one point. So, of course, humans are a very adaptable, pliable species. Things move on. And if I were to be honest, would I want to live today or in the 1800s, I would want to live today. Okay, we we just went through a major pandemic um, and I am glad to have a vaccine and to not be living in a past where I probably wouldn't be alive. So for sure. But at the same time, one of the difficult things that happens when people talk about progress and assume we're making progress is certain things are just so normalized, we have a hard time imagining how things could have been where other decisions made and life could have been better. So just that very vantage point that we say, well, today is better off than whatever, 1812 or 1950 or, or, or whatever that is, what that leaves out are ways that today could have been even better than it currently is, that we've made certain decisions. Like, you know, Again, I'm not going to say something like absolutely horrible about the Internet. It is so beneficial in so many ways. But if you were to have asked people in like 1980 as a thought experiment, would you want to live in a period where you were and you were to describe everything, giving up all of this information and doing all of these things? I think people would have been a bit sort of horrified. And now we sort of can't imagine living otherwise. So one of the ways I think a progress trap happens is you end up looking at some of the things that seem far worse off in a previous period that aren't happening now, but you're not making the adequate comparisons because it's very hard to have this kind of counterfactual. It could have been, it should have been, it would have been. So I'll begin with there. What's happening with AI, and obviously, look, people define artificial intelligence in different ways, and they associate different devices and tools with AI. Let's not litigate so we can move on. Like, what counts as AI? Here's the big picture that I think matters. And I'll I'll just baseline this with a particular view of privacy. This is just one avenue into this that I've been developing for years with a law professor named Woody Hartzog. Woodrow Hartzog is a professor of law at BU. Okay, here was one of the insights that Woody and I have literally been trying to just expound on for years. So much of what we call privacy, Woody and I think, is better understood as what we call obscurity. And here's what we mean by that. And I'm going to connect it to AI. This is not the right, the right not to be known. No, it's a little bit. Okay, the right to be forgotten could be a way of taking ideas in obscurity, but that that that's not what I would see obscurity as. Okay, there are so many definitions of privacy. People have cottage industries. One of the ways we try to sidestep this interminable debate over what is privacy and make some progress in issues is we define obscurity in the following way: obscurity means information is either hard to get or hard to properly interpret. 
It is a transaction cost view of information. When it is hard to find information, that's a deterrent. When it is hard to properly interpret information, that's a deterrent. So to just give you an easy example, you and I, Brent, uh, if I were back by where you were and we went out for a cup of coffee or we went out for a beer, we could be out in public having a great conversation about everything that's happening at the American Enterprise Institute. Oh, it's doing this, it's doing that. We could talk about so many things. We could probably have an amazing amount of, I'm not going to call it privacy, I'm going to say obscurity in public. How can you have privacy or obscurity in public? Well, the answer is, unless you and I are kind of speaking as animated as we're doing now, if we're not shouting, people are going to be going about doing their own business. We're not that interesting to them. We have norm besides even norms of civil inattention, people are wrapped up in their own worlds. And as much as, you know, you and I might be the stars of this particular podcast, we're not that famous. Most people have no idea who we are, right? And so as a consequence, we can pretty much talk our talk, we can build relations, we can talk about controversial things no one's going to know. What, what a lot of technology now is becoming very good at, and AI is boosting this, is the ability to radically diminish transaction costs. So again, take you and I being at a cafe. Um, without facial recognition software, we've never had to worry about being de-anonymized in public, not because there were laws protecting us, because we existed in a natural default state of obscurity. Not that many people knew our faces and could associate it with the name. There's a kind of biological limitation on how many names and faces the average person can store, and there's only so many people we encounter in a lifetime. Now, facial recognition technology can completely transform that relationship because at a click, it diminishes that transaction cost. One last thing on that. Take you and I, again, having this conversation. We could, if people are listening, if we're being a little bit too excited, we could lower, lower our voices a bit. There are strategies we could take to modulate and protect our obscurity. But AI can make lip reading incredibly easy. Maybe it could make lip reading at a distance incredibly easy. So many of the things that we have had over history and over time protecting privacy, what I'm going to call obscurity, wasn't because we had laws preventing people from doing it. It was because there were either default limits, limits to our biology, how much we could see, how much we could hear, how much we could remember, or there was only so much technology could do to overcome those limitations. That's the kind of radical transition or sort of almost inflection point that I think we're at now. And that's just talking about surveillance, but that's one really crucial aspect. Mm. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because there's a <clears throat> there's an immediate political application to what you're talking about, which is and I tweeted this out last night or this morning, I can't remember, but it somebody was on, you know, a one of these web uh news networks, uh, which is a really interesting development all on its own, but uh and they were they were making this absurd, spurious comparison uh between say i think it was like january 6th protesters and the protests at the capitol in nashville uh over gun control and uh and there you, you know people say those things in order to draw attention to themselves they want controversy and so it's not just that you know, the technology erodes obscurity. There's no value in obscurity in, in, an, in an attention economy, which is where where we exist. That's why we're doing but, this. But it's worse than that, Bren, right? Uh, sure, we're living at, we're living in an age where 
many people do want to brand themselves and draw attention to themselves, all these sorts of things, right? And there are many economic and social reasons why that's happened. But at the beginning of the podcast, you asked about an origin story. And I mentioned being this kind of precocious and slightly obnoxious, you know, uh, philosophy guy. I am glad that I did not grow up at a time where the internet was there for, yeah. for exactly this reason of obscurity yeah. that you asked about the right to be forgotten. That's a very complicated thing if we were to talk about the legality of that in Europe or what have you. But let's just take about let, let's just use that idea here in a more kind of metaphorical sense. There are so many stupid things we do, many of us do as kids, because that's part of growing up, right? You need to kind of figure out who you are. You need to be challenging. You need to try out positions that you're not even sure if you believe mm -hmm. just to find it and get a reaction from other people mm -hmm. and use their reaction as a litmus to go, wow, this thing that I thought was really cool. Wow. I, okay. Now I'm going to rethink it's kind of stupid or wow. I was thinking a bit outside the box here and I'm noticing that people aren't freaked out. Maybe there's something to it. And that level of experimentation, that ability to try on different identities, think different thoughts, to not necessarily feel we have to live a particular kind of life with a particular identity. Maybe our parents have certain beliefs or our community. The ability to kind of experiment with that without having the, quote, permanent record tracing yeah. us, this is incredibly important for human development, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I and I when I when I think about people young people in particular who achieve young, very bright, uh, extremely well-read. Um, when I, when I think about some of these people and the, and the level of notoriety that they're achieving at a really young age, that is a very high risk proposition, uh, for the individual, uh, because you can only make so many mistakes before you begin to, destroy the brand that you're trying to create. Um, and one of the advantages of coming up in the pre-internet age in politics anyway, was that you mostly worked behind the scenes. You know, you were, you had filters between you and the public uh, that prevented and helped you mitigate uh, your own errors before they became uh, publicly known. So I think that's, that, low cost uh, to public statements you you know there's virtually no cost now to saying things publicly there's no cost and to just add one other thing to your point here which is, i think important i mean some people used to believe and some people still believe and in both cases they're wrong this idea that uh, having more transparency would be an overall good thing for society mm -hmm. and the basic point they were making was this look uh, there are many things that we all or not even all of us there are many things that people believe and do that are stigmatized and if there were more transparency so that people began to realize it's not just me or you but there's an us right that stigmas would break away, people would have more freedom to be who they are. And that idea presupposed that transparency would lead to sort of tolerance and acceptance. Mm -hmm. But of course, I don't really think the causal relation works that way. And I think for two reasons. I mean, one, uh, people who have greater power are always going to have greater power, right? So like when President Obama, you know, was talking about, you know, smoking marijuana as, as a kid, did that mean at the time that everybody would be tolerant. I mean, now we're changing our drug laws a bit, but at the time, did that mean that anyone who would talk about smoking would, no, like there were certain people that were absolutely going to find it hard to go to work the next day if they admitted that in public. So having a bit of power always gives you a little bit more cushion mm -hmm. to do things that people without power can't do. But the other thing is living in this hyper-politicized age that we're living in, 
Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you say, even if other people might do it too, is going to be seen as a good thing for you. Anything can be weaponized against you, right? I mean, that's that's part of this kind of like hyper-politicization of everything. So something that might be acceptable for one person to do uh, within a kind of, you know, group or filter bubble or niche, that's going to be, you know, a reason for taking someone down a peg. So that vision that this is good that we're losing transaction costs. It's good that more things are out in the open, that they're not kept in secret, that they're not lurking and hiding in the shadows. This will be overall good for a pluralistic society. I don't necessarily think in the aggregate that that's been the case, although obviously this can happen in certain instances. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we can move on after this, but I, I think that there's really something to that uh, in just in, in terms of human evolution, right? I mean, we we uh we evolved as a species in a framework uh you know a close-up face-to-face you know framework uh and we're still designed for that you know and yet now we have this overlay of uh instantaneous uh mass communication um where uh as you said earlier we don't have a chance to try anything out um, we we are immediately staked forever to whatever uh, statement we we make uh, at any given time. So uh, it's it's fascinating point. Um, let's uh, I, I want to get to Taylorism, but I'd first like to just uh, have you make the opposite case. What's the best case for technology in your view? Uh, you know, you, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and, and the way that technology, the, the, the benefits that it brings to us, what do you think is the best case, uh, uh, the advantages that we derive, um, from it? Like overall or in a specific, because there's I mean, so many things count as technology, everything from right. medicine, to things we're using to communicate to, I mean, help. Help me. What, what what do you want me to comment on? I'll give you a good. I, I guess I'm thinking about um, you know there it, it's possible to focus entirely on the downside, and we've seen a lot of that in the last week, right? We sure. we had we had somebody uh, you know we had a group of scientists come out and say hey 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 whoa 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 on 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 AI that we need to pause we need to stop stop development stop certainly stop proliferation of this until we have a better regulatory process in place. And they laid out a bunch of reasons um, sure. for that. What's the other side of that equation? Um, uh, and I want the reason I'm asking this is I want to hear you grapple with uh, what the upside is um, for us in terms of technology. Okay, so I'm not going to go with the low-hanging fruit and tell you that obviously, and I think I think many people would agree, again, happy to be alive in 2023 because of medical technology. And I would hope that personalized medicine, for example, becomes something that we can make great breakthroughs in, right? The, the potential idea that um, we might be able to have, for example, something like, I don't know, like a digital double. And I don't know how far away we are from this. I know this is maybe a little bit pie in the sky, but like the potential idea that there would be ways of simulating particular aspects of us so that you could try out a variety of medications mm 
rather than having to go through the horrible, laborious thing of trial and error, lots of side effects, and maybe not enough time to make it to the finish line. So something like that, I, I'm very excited about. I mean, we're already seeing digital doubles, for example, used with production and manufacturing, for example. But if we can do something like that on a more biological level, and again, that's not going to be an easy thing, and there's going to be a lot of privacy and ethical issues in that. It's far from uh, a simple technifix, like what information would you feed in? What would be the reliability of the models? Um, how are people giving consent? What kinds of predictions are you making? Like even that would be incredibly complicated, but not insurmountable. So that is something I would love to see because I think unfortunately for all the advances in medicine, there's so many biological distinctions and idiosyncrasies among us that you could prevent a massive amount of suffering hypothetically if you could find a way to be able to try out things really quickly in simulations, maybe, you know, at a kind of hyperspeed that would save people not just days or weeks, but months or years, right? And not have to maybe even be in like super risky, you know, uh, trial. So something like that, I'm, I'm incredibly heartened about. Okay, that's a, I mean, I think that's a great example. And I, I guess then the, the question to me is, is it, po and I want your perspective on this, is it possible to get the stuff that we want without running the risks around the stuff that we don't want? I mean, everything's possible. I mean, part of the, or maybe the fundamental difficulty is um, there are different kinds of incentives and disincentives in play. There are different kinds of trade-offs. So the idea of who's going to be happy with certain kinds of results, right? Many of these things are so complicated that the idea of having a complete win-win scenario, that that's the difficulty. Things that are maybe better for business maybe a little bit more complicated on the consumer side, or maybe even certain gains in health, maybe that requires a little bit less autonomy. Like some, there's no silver bullet to this. I think a large, a large problem is the way that a lot of this gets framed in terms of expectation management. I mean, you know, I think to, to drum, we're seeing a lot of this with AI now, to drum up enthusiasm, to get people on board, to overcome cautions and fears, the kind of hype machine goes on overdrive. So just as you might suggest that like being overly pessimistic or unduly dystopian, maybe that could get in the way of important things, but also this kind of sunniness and over-optimism, I think is at the root of so many of these problems because it blinds us to complexity. And complexity is something people don't want to hear about. We, we, we want a simple techno fix, the idea that there's a simple solution, an engineering-based solution for complicated problems. I mean, that, that's often the fantasy. Mm -hmm. Right. Perhaps, and I've heard this argument made, um, and I may start making it myself, is that we've got a lot of structures in place, legal structures, regulatory structures, uh, that provide us with a lot of opportunities to mitigate harm, even now, without some sort of independently developed, full-blown regulatory structure around artificial intelligence. We've got a lot of, of extant, options, legal and regulatory options for mitigating harm. Right. Um, it, is that sufficient to sort of sort of allow AI to roll forward uh, organically into the economy and into society or do we need something more in your uh, in your 
in your perspective on your perspective on this sure i'm going to go with option b we need something more mm-hmm. uh and i'll just just i'll be real quick here i'm gonna go back to the obscurity and surveillance thing okay one of the core reasons Woody and I formulated this idea of obscurity is that in American law, for the most part, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy when you're in public. And there was a kind of logic to that, right? It would be like me being in public, surrounded by other people screaming, avert your eyes, don't look at me, I'm not here, right? Like that kind of wouldn't work. And it made some sense for long periods of time that we wouldn't need to protect privacy in public. This is why the home was considered your sort of you know, the locus classic, it's the domicile of privacy. But now that we're changing transaction costs in such a radical way, again, just using, you mentioned protests, you could think about facial recognition technology, right? The ease of being able to identify lawful protesters in public using facial recognition technology, this is something we haven't had to worry about previously. And it doesn't necessarily mean even there, right? You could have a journalist wanting to capture the moment for historical fidelity, to show the groundswell of support for an idea. And that photograph could easily be mined to figure out who specifically was there. These people could end up in a database. So that's just one example where the law is sort of very much out of sync with obscurity evisceration. But since you mentioned things happening this week, right, Here's where there seems to be a lot of tension just in terms of news of the week, right? Where, like, is the law lagging behind? Is there a kind of gap? So, I mean, just on a social level, the profound panic happening around the large language model discussion, things like chat GPT. Now, you might say it's not a regulatory issue to figure out what to do in the schools. Probably not, per se. But the fact of the matter is, uh, teachers everywhere are panicking and don't know what to do. They were radically thrown off. I'm not saying there isn't a way forward, but I'm saying that the inability to plan for this and the radical ways that it seems to be upending traditional ways of doing education in, in some quarters, teachers are losing a lot of sleep over this and they're not sure what to do. We could push this further in the regulatory sense. You know, one of the debates that was happening this week is that uh, some of these technologies seem to be trained on uh, data that is leading them to come up with incorrect statements. So a professor, I think earlier in the week, and if I have the time frame off, I apologize slightly, I think was running queries to find out like what law professors have been accused of something like really bad. And so the technology came up with some answers. And one of them clearly was not someone who did the thing Mm -hmm. that the technology associated with. with. Um, Is this libel? Like, what is it? Who's responsible for this kind of? So I I think that this is just one example of the myriad of ways in which we we are dealing with this problem of advances in technology outpacing the law. So we can play out that that scenario. So if if I'm a professor who has been uh, publicly accused of something that I did not do and it's demonstrably false, uh, I have avenues. I currently have an avenue. I mean, that's slander. It's libel. It's, you know, I can sue uh, the journalist or the publication or the company that stands behind the AI, 
uh, and test what the limits, what the boundaries are about around responsibility for those. I mean, that's typically the way we do law in this country. Sure. Why, why shouldn't we just have that as the baseline? But, but who, who's the, who is the speaker here? Who is the author of the libel? If it's a stochastic, if it's a stochastic inference, so it's coming out of the technology and maybe this happened, maybe again, I'm just being hypothetical. Maybe you're doing this on a search engine like Bing. And maybe it's connected to this technology. And of course, you know, the way that we look at uh, some of these technologies is they they are immunized as an intermediary, right? This isn't a statement of Microsoft proclaiming this. This is something that the technology came up with. Right. No, I I, I understand that there's a there are there's a there's a huge a huge number of questions in all mm-hmm. of this. What I'm suggesting is that we may actually have the mechanisms in place for getting the answers, not preemptively, not ahead of time, but as you know, we define the law as we move forward um, on these things, rather than trying to develop ahead of time this kind of regulatory structure that may, in fact, end up inhibiting and preventing the, the great stuff that we want to have to happen right so there's always this there's always this give and take um anytime we attempt to mitigate a problem we are in at least uh potentially mitigating solutions um to other problems um this would be an easier way to make the point uh so we went back to surveillance. I think probably the Fourth Amendment is probably in dire need of an overhaul precisely because of some of these obscurity issues that, mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Many things. And so here's a here's a two second version of a new paper that uh, that I have out with uh, with two collaborators, including Woody um, and uh, a really great student named uh, Johanna. We talk about the law normalizing surveillance and the two second version comes down to this. You know, some one of the ways that you could test for the Fourth Amendment, right, about uh, unreasonable searches and seizures is whether something is unreasonable. But what what is unreasonable? Right. What what is considered beyond the bounds of reason? That's obviously something very malleable and very pliable. And so the more surveillance that we introduce that passes a legal threshold the easier it becomes to kind of re-engineer society's expectations of what counts as normal. And so in terms of a kind of cat and mouse game, it becomes easy to kind of ratchet up over time society's expectations so that things begin to appear reasonable that weren't reasonable previously. And without a kind of firm backstop that would say, whoa, whoa, it's not just about or it isn't predominantly about, or we shouldn't keep trying to anchor. I mean, it's never just been about what people believe. Reasonableness is a kind of complicated criteria, but it does have something to do with the kind of, you know, mindset of many people. That's something that's always going to advantage pro-surveillance. So, you know, this is a major challenge. I think this is one of the reasons that something like the Fourth Amendment is deeply challenged. Yeah, and when I, I think about the Fourth Amendment, and I don't know that much about it, but I imagine there are shelves full of books interpreting these questions, sort of Talmudic, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, reflection on, uh, you know, what is reasonable, uh, what does reasonable mean in, in a legal and constitutional standpoint. I, I, I guess I have more confidence in 
that as a uh, leading us to the kinds of outcomes that we want um, than I have in, say, Congress or uh, a constitutional convention rewriting the Fourth Amendment uh, uh, to, to, to attempt to address it. Anyway, good, very good conversation. I really, uh, or good observations on this. I really appreciate it. Let's talk for a few minutes here at the end about work. Um, sure. uh, and you've, you've written a very interesting book, uh, reengineering humanity. You've talked about worker autonomy. Uh, you've, uh, engineered determinism. Tell us what, the Evan Selinger view of the future of work is, um, uh, especially as it relates to our, you know, sort of accelerating technological development. Yeah, so I'm far from the only person to be worried about this, but I am, I am for sure worried. So, you know, one of the themes in the book is we want to talk about what it means to create environments that change how people behave. And so we, as you mentioned, Taylorism, we, we track some of this back to this idea. I mean, Frederick Winslow Taylor, right? He was this mechanical engineer who lived in the 1800s up to 1915. And look, he had this idea, like as a young man, he was working for a steel mill, steel mill corporation in Philadelphia. He saw a lot of inefficiencies, sort of poor structures, unmotivated people. Uh, he was worried that workers were shirking. And so he began these kind of time management ways of operationalizing things. And obviously today we're, we're living in an age of what Brett and I, my co-author Brett Frischman call digital Taylorism. We're not the only ones to use this vocabulary. This idea that in order to uh, ratchet out maximum office productivity, you want to be able to engage in maximum surveillance. And look, you know, those who would want to make a positive case for this would say something like, well, workers will try to get away with things and we need to keep them in line. Or of course, we have responsibilities to be productive. Like, that's the whole point. We're not, we're not, this is not social time. We're not here to be unproductive. And if there are ways to monitor gaps in productivity, well, that's sort of proper. Uh, someone might even say there's fairness implicated here. Isn't it unfair when less productive people get hired or get promoted, maybe through nepotism or they're kissing up at work or there's some sort of bias? So, you know, there's a lot of reasons in the workplace and on their face, many of these things sort of sound credible. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting fairness. Fairness is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, like we have a responsibility to shareholders or to, you know, to the consumer. Like we do need efficiencies. All of this is true. The problem happens once you start doing hyper, hyper optimization. And that boundary between optimization and hyper optimization is a very thin line. You know, the, the, the easy example for people to grasp is because this was just covered so much in, in, you know, in the news, all of this reporting about Amazon warehouses. So again, I've never, I've never been behind the scenes. I can't speak to the veracity of these things. But much of the reporting suggested, to use this language of Taylorism, that you know, workers were being optimized to behave like simple machines, that part of the difficulty is when you have a certain vision of productivity, and this can happen if, for example, people are feeling like jobs are scarce, so they're going to do what it takes to keep the job, or you know, the pay rate for this is maybe better than some alternatives. The next thing you know, you hear all this reports that people have to be so productive that they are given, again, 
according to reporting, this is not my behind the scenes, you know, insufficient time for things like bathroom breaks and are having to urinate in cups because obviously machines don't need bathroom breaks, right? And I also think in terms of the future of work, I think we're being a little cavalier about the way that we're looking at the pandemic, to be honest with you, in the following sense. You know, right now there's this kind of like um, massive drive that everything has to be back to quote normal, whatever normal means. Okay. Here's something that I think some managers began to realize, you know, during when things were shut down, you know, who can come to work when there's a pandemic robots, you know, who isn't going to get sick robots. And there's a lot of other predictions that are saying as much as we're trying to like enjoy, you know, if people are feeling like whatever, like now is the time to get back to things. I'm not trying to be a Cassandra about this, but a lot of people are worried this is not the only pandemic we're going to encounter, maybe not even in our lifetime. But that seed has been planted. Who doesn't, who is not vulnerable? Who is not going to be inefficient? Robots. So I certainly think the pandemic was also a dress rehearsal for many to realize in terms of vulnerabilities that as much as we're acting like everything needs to be back to the office and back in person from a kind of production and distribution side, from a supply chain side, I think there was a great awakening that humans are an incredible fly in the ointment. And this is something we really need to be worried about. Hmm. 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 Very interesting. So yes and no. Uh, I mean, I think that one of the things coming out of the pandemic that has been made uh, shockingly obvious uh, is just how human dependent the economy really is um, in terms of uh, being able to meet the needs and demands of the society of the uh, of consumers. Um and uh, to me, one of the big lessons coming out of this is that it's really shown us what having too few people available to work uh, actually does, uh, is doing in the economy, which is raising inflation. It, uh, it is it, uh, it's generating a, a tremendous amount of pressure that we don't have enough people. So in a sense, it's been like, a bit of a uh, a hopeful note to me, just how uh, uh, how vigorously we've been reminded that the economy is essentially about people, um, and that uh, not having enough of them, not having them in the right places with the right skills, uh, is not is is a challenge that isn't going away. It's getting it's getting more more so and technology actually may be a part part of the answer to overcoming that challenge um that we just we're not growing um uh, population wise we're going to need more technology rather than less if we want to maintain um, standards of living um well this has been terrific evan um so thankful for your your time and your work uh i think that you know, the way that the way forward for all of us is really to try to integrate uh, all of these these perspectives uh, to help us find solutions and find answers that serve continue to serve people rather than make people the servants of technology. If I can um, just add, this is yeah. why I love doing what I do, right? Yeah. I am glad I am thrilled that the majority of my students teaching at a technical school are 
science-based or engineering-based, that they're going into these fields. Like my hope, I mean, and maybe this distinguishes me from a couple of other approaches to doing philosophy, because you can do it different ways. My goal is never to make those students mini philosophers. My goal is, you know, okay, you've come here to become a biomechanical engineer or to enter cybersecurity or, you know, whatever these things are. Uh, you want to be a game designer. Uh, I'm here to tell you, get out of that. No, I'm like, great. <laughs> but I think these insights and these conversations can help you do a better job of doing that. That there are these kinds of, in the conversations that we're having here, being exposed to these kinds of things on the other end, on the other side, can lead to, I think, technologies being used more in a salutary way. But this is where I think the education process has, you know, an important role to play. So for sure. Well, again, thanks for your time. This has been terrific. Uh, and really look forward to staying in touch with you. Um, uh, this will not be, I think the last time that we interact around, um, technology and vocation, uh, and technology, education and vocation, which are all intimately bound up with one another. Uh, and I look forward to, uh, to seeing all the great new stuff that you're going to be putting out. Yeah, thanks again. It was great, Brent. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.